Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Families of the kidnapping victims in Mexico are now revealing how that tragedy unfolded. The lead starts right now. She watched her friends die. A woman's dramatic story after armed men kidnapped her and her friends and relatives in Mexico. Today, we're learning more about what happened on that horrible day. Also, cops describing black citizens as monkeys, as animals, calling them boy. The Justice Department today singling out police in a major U.S. city for racist and abusive practices. And Tesla under fire. New questions about its self-driving feature after yet another crash, plus an investigation into Tesla steering wheels on one model, steering wheels that can apparently fall off. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our world lead and new heartbreaking details about the kidnappings of those four Americans in Mexico. We're learning from one of the survivors today, Latavia Washington McGee, that her cousin and her friend were the two victims killed in the attack. She says the two were immediately shot When gunmen approached their car, she watched them die. The autopsy of those two victims, Shaid Woodward, the cousin, and Zindel Brown, the friend, were finished this morning, and their remains are expected to be returned to the U.S. soon. Today, Mexico's president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, pledged to see the investigation through and to get to the bottom of exactly what happened. CNN's Diane Gallagher starts off our coverage today with more details on where this group was found after the kidnapping and where the investigation stands now. It's feel good to know that she's coming home and she's safe. The mother of kidnapped survivor, Latavia Tay, Washington McGee, relieved she will see her daughter soon. I was praying for all of them. But not all of them will make it home alive. Just two of the four Americans kidnapped in Matamoros, Mexico, survived the terrifying ordeal. McGee, the only one not physically hurt by the captors, and her friend Eric Williams, who was shot three times in the legs, according to his wife. Tears of joy, I guess, that he's alive. I didn't even want to imagine what what he was going through or, you know, what any of them were going through. But McGee's cousin, Shaid Woodard, and longtime friend Zendel Brown did not survive. She watched them die, and that's what hurt her, she said. The group rented a minivan to travel from South Carolina so McGee could undergo a medical procedure. Just days later, this terrifying video appears to show one of the Americans being shoved into the bed of a pickup truck at gunpoint in broad daylight and taken from the scene. Burgess tells CNN about her first call with her daughter. She was crying because she said, I said, are you okay? She said, um, yeah. She she watched Shahid die, Shahid Zell. Him and her the only one survived out of the four. And what she feared when she got the dreaded call from the FBI, who she says confirmed her daughter was in danger. They were going to kill her and I would never see her again. The Mexican government saying the group was found in a wooden home and had been moved around to create confusion and avoid rescue. They also say one person in connection to the two deaths has been detained, but the investigation continues. For McGee's family, their relief clouded by sadness for those who won't make it back home. I'm going to miss them because I love them all under death. 
and the bodies of Shahid Woodard and Zendel Brown. Uh, again, those autopsies completed this morning. We are told by a source in a Mexico federal prosecutor's office that the repatriation of those bodies should happen soon. Jake, the mother of Latavia McGee, said that she actually took in uh, her cousin, Shahid Woodard, when he was a teenager after his mother died and raised him as a son to her. She is, of course, experiencing immense grief and intense relief that her daughter is at least coming home. And she expects it could be as early as today. Diane Gallagher in South Carolina, the home state of the four victims. Let's discuss with CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller, as well as CNN and Espanol correspondent Gustavo Valdez. John, let me start with you. A Mexican official says U.S. law enforcement was not on the ground in Mexico during the search for the kidnapping victims. Do you think it's likely that Americans are on the ground now assisting with the investigation? Well, I think they were before um, these victims were recovered. Uh, they were working in the streets of Matamoros. And, you know, this is two things, Jake. I mean, one, it's an area of sensitivity for the Mexican government because um, particularly this president uh, does not like the idea of, uh, you know, four Americans getting in trouble and the FBI taking over in the appearance of Americans operating um, on the ground in Mexico. So it is a sensitivity. But uh, I've been told by people who are briefed on the operations that FBI agents, DEA agents, HSI agents from Homeland Security uh, who have worked in that area before um, and knowing the dangers were out there uh, trying to run leads and look for things and that the cartels that have their lookouts and spotters uh, were right there watching them. Interesting. And you were obviously when you said the president doesn't like the sensitivities of that, you're talking about Mexican President Lopez Obrador. Gustavo uh, Lopez Obrador said today that political adversaries are making a scandal uh, out of the kidnappings. How do you assess how the Mexican government is handling this? So he is trying to first appease his base and the Mexican citizens, uh, showing that the fast uh, solution to this uh, problem is uh, an example of how he's dealing with violence. He started four years ago promising a change of policy that would result in less violence, something that we're seeing is not necessarily the case. But then when we hear that people, politicians in the United States, like Senator Lindsey Graham, are uh, suggesting that the U.S. military should intervene in Mexico, that is an opportunity for him, first to criticize intervention from the United States, but also to link those comments from the United States to media that are basically telling what's happening in the United States. And then he blames this media that he has an adversary relationship with and said, you see, they are, you're all trying to come after me. Hmm. John, what do you think about how this is all being handled? It seems Mexican officials would like to resolve this as quickly as possible and try to get it out of the headlines. Well, it's certainly bad for business, Jake. And, you know, Gustavo will tell you this is this is complicated for the Mexican president and for the Mexican government. They've got three things to contend with here. Uh, number one, uh, they need to appear that they acted quickly, swiftly and in control of this, uh, which they've done a reasonably good job of in that people were recovered. Two of them are alive and that happened in a relative short time. Number two, there's the tourist industry. And, you know, their messaging here has been a little contradictory, uh, saying, well, first, we think these people were targeted because the Gulf cartel mistook them as Haitians, then saying, well, now we don't think it's, it's that because, you know, they may be concerned of the tourism to even the medical tourism that comes over the border from Brownsville coming to a sudden halt. Um, especially for people of color, if they think they're going to be targeted there. 
And the third thing, of course, is the cartel, which is a fact of life that the government has to work with, work around, sometimes even deal with. Um, I think that uh, they'd really like this problem to get out of the news, go away, and then figure out next steps with their U.S. counterparts on what does justice look like in this case. Gustavo, you and I talked yesterday about how towns like Matamoros draw millions of people each year for medical tourism. Uh, is there a concern among these businesses that this tragedy could really hurt them? Yes, certainly in the state of Tamaulipas. You know, we have these business, businesses all over the border. Not all of them have the same issues as we see in, in Tamaulipas, which is really a hot spot for this kind of incidents. But it's not just the medical uh, community that is uh, worried about it. It's also the people who go and do just basic shopping into Mexico where some products might be cheaper. And right now we're about to get into spring break, Easter season. And that is a big uh, attraction for Mexican tourists trying to get to the American side, South Padre Island, and might be rethinking their travel plans if they have to go through Matamoros, through Reynosa, if they're having these kind of issues. So it's an issue that is going to affect both sides of the border financially. And John, just last week, the Biden administration sanctioned Mexican companies that they said were connected to a notorious drug cartel. How does this situation affect the broader efforts by the U.S. to deal with cartels and illegal drugs? Well, I think this all tells the story, Jake. I mean, what you see here is cartel violence on the street affecting Americans, uh, two of them killed, um, a harrowing experience and a story that's going to be told. Uh, but when you look at these companies, Mexican companies that were sanctioned, they were in the timeshare business, in the financial services business. What it shows is that the cartels um, are diversifying. They're spreading out. You know, you've got narcotics and now, you know, the chemical and fentanyl, which they've been in for years. Fentanyl has become a giant moneymaker. The Gulf cartel alone is probably a $10 billion entity. Uh, but then you have human trafficking, the smuggling of migrants across the Mexican border, um, which runs for many miles, has become a boon for a number of the cartels who are making millions and millions from that. And then you have to launder that money, which, you know, this timeshare scam, these financial services companies, things that they're doing with um, Chinese money launderers and organized crime groups. Uh, how do you clean off billions of dollars and get to spend it? And that case last week is a sign of, of their diversifying and looking for other ways. John Miller and Gustavo Valdez, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the increasing global challenge for the U.S. that the director of U.S. intelligence today ranked as a, quote, unparalleled priority. Plus, the rare view of Ukraine's eastern city of Bakhmut, once a tourist attraction, and what could happen if Russian forces do take it over. And the stern message for the FAA today in the wake of a string of serious airline incidents in recent weeks. Stay with us. Of all the threats and challenges around the world today, the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, says by far one is the most significant. The People's Republic of China, which is increasingly challenging the United States economically, technologically, politically, and militarily around the world, remains our unparalleled priority. Director Haynes testified before the Senate Intelligence Committee today alongside the FBI director, the CIA director, and other top intelligence officials. And as CNN's Oren Lieberman reports for us, between China and Russia, COVID and fentanyl, the hearing touched on a variety of threats around the world. 
Thank you all. Tonight, a look at worldwide threats that keep coming back to China. The heads of U.S. intelligence agencies telling senators that Beijing is modernizing its military, expanding its influence, and working to control supply chains as it tries to replace the U.S. as the global leader. Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, under President Xi Jinping, will continue efforts to achieve Xi's vision of making China the preeminent power in East Asia. The CCP is increasingly convinced that it can only do so at the expense of U.S. power and influence. China using its economic force and its tech to spy on adversaries. Could they use TikTok to control data on millions of users? Uh, Yes. Could they use it to control the software on millions of devices given the opportunity to do so? Yes. Senators pushed for a consensus on the origins of COVID-19. The FBI believes it leaked from a lab in Wuhan, but there is no smoking gun and no definitive answer. The Department of Energy has changed its view slightly with low confidence. It says that a lab leak is most likely, but they do so for different reasons than the FBI does. And their assessments are not identical. Relations between Beijing and Moscow came under scrutiny, with the U.S. watching closely for any signs that China is considering providing weapons to Russia. We do see them providing assistance to uh, Russia in the context of the conflict. And we see them uh, in a situation in which they become increasingly uncomfortable about the level of assistance and not looking to um, do it as publicly as uh, might otherwise occur. And... uh, given the reputational costs associated with it. One year into the war in Ukraine, Russia's manpower is spread thin, its military resources strained. But President Vladimir Putin is playing for time, not for short-term victory. We do not foresee the Russian military recovering enough this year to make major territorial gains, but Putin most likely calculates that time works in his favor, even if it takes years. There was bipartisan outrage on the investigations of classified documents found at former President Donald Trump home of Mar-a-Lago and the offices of President Joe Biden and former Vice President Mike Pence. We still have unfinished business regarding the classified documents that we need to see in order for this intelligence committee to effectively oversee its job on intelligence oversights. Members of the committee pressing the intelligence leaders to provide the documents or even just to characterize what's in them. Our patience is starting to run out. And at least some of us are prepared to start putting our foot down if we don't get better answers and the stone wall doesn't stop. One of the other issues that got quite a bit of attention here was fentanyl. The intelligence community pointing out that many of the more than 100,000 annual drug overdoses in the country are because of fentanyl. Even that comes back to China. Although it's Mexican cartels that import the finished product into the U.S., it is China where they say a lot of the raw materials for those drugs come from. Jake? Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. As Oren noted, U.S. intelligence officials do not believe that Russia will make major territorial gains in Ukraine this year. That's despite recent headlines about Putin's army closing in on the city of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine. Today, Ukraine said its military is holding off the Russians, but Russian mercenaries from the Wagner Group say that parts of Bakhmut are under their brutal control. CNN's Melissa Bell is in Ukraine with this look at what this city under siege was like before all the troops moved in. Bakhmut, now a byword for horror and death. Before the war, Bakhmut was about life. Its sculpted hedges and rose gardens regularly Instagrammed, a picture of peace. 
and one of the oldest cities in the Donbass, its genteel facades built on the prosperity of salt mines. Marina Zvania is the fourth generation of her family born and raised in the city. Now she and the pupils she taught have had to flee. Her life, she says, lies in ruins, like the old theatre in which she had her wedding photos taken. They started by destroying the buildings that would be hardest to rebuild, the priceless historical heritage of our city, because I think they want to erase our nation. A history celebrated only recently for the 450th anniversary of the founding of Bakhmut, its grand buildings proud reminders of better times. Seven months of Russian artillery have pulverized it, driving more than 90% of its people out and those left to the edge of sanity. It's not living, it's surviving. People can get used to the living without heating, water. You can never get used to explosions. Before the war, Bakhmut was famous for the winery built in its salt mines and for its bubbles, a tourist attraction now plundered by Evgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner mercenary group. His men closing in on the center of the city and making it harder for civilians to get in and out. This is the so-called Road of Life, one of the last arteries into the town's center, bogged down and muddy, usable only now by armored vehicles. Home in Bakhmut is no more. The view from above, from heaven to hell. How would you describe what's been lost? <sighs> it's as if my heart has been pulled out and thrown away, and I'm trying to pick up the pieces and put it together again. I don't know how else to describe it. Absolutely everything is lost. And soon, most likely, in Russian hands. But for all that's been lost there, Jake, in terms of history and for the people of Bakhmut, of course, Ukraine more widely has been preparing for some time that at some point its forces were likely to make that tactical retreat. And what they have achieved, according to Western officials, is that real degrading of uh, the Russian war capability. What Western officials say is that they've essentially given up space for time, holding on to the town as much as they could, because it means that as they gain time, they believe that it'll be very difficult for Russia, once it's taken Bakhmut, to launch any other major offensives for some time. This was the first one in many months. Jake, they will take it. Beyond that, Western officials just don't believe they have the depth that they need, the reserves elsewhere in Luhansk and Donetsk, to mount much more in terms of offensive action. On the Ukrainian side, having gained that time and expecting all the new Western equipment that they should be getting over the next few weeks, we know them to be preparing the next counteroffensive. Uh, and that was also what Bakhmut was about, Jake. All right, Melissa Bell in Kiev, thank you so much. And be sure to tune in to Wolf Blitzer's interview with President Zelensky this evening at 9 p.m. Is the number of airline close calls going up or are we just hearing about them more often? The acting head of the FAA weighed in on that today and why he insists flying is perfectly safe right now. Stay with us. In our national lead, the head of a major pilots association today had a message for the FAA. Do your job. This after six recent incidents involving airliners prompted renewed scrutiny on Capitol Hill. CNN's Pete Montine joins us. Now, Pete, lawmakers on the Senate Commerce Committee 
have been grilling the acting FAA chief. Jake, troubling was the term used by Senator Ted Cruz. Acting FAA Administrator Billy Nolan faced lawmakers for the second time in a month. But this hearing was really supposed to be on reforms following the 737 MAX disasters. But these repeat close calls at major airports got a lot more attention. They're known officially as runway incursions. A new incident in Sarasota just came to light on Monday. That's on top of the incidents at JFK, Austin, Boston, Burbank, and Honolulu. Now, pilots have told us they think these are an outgrowth of a system under too much pressure, not only by airlines, but also by air traffic control. But today, Nolan insisted that flying is safe right now. Our nation has the safest, most complex system in the world. And I want to assure the American public that we are safe. We also resilient. Safety is always a journey. We are never going to declare victory. And if there's something to learn, we're going to look for ways and opportunities to learn it. Nolan says that will be the focus of a next week safety summit by the FAA. The idea is to bring together airlines and the FAA. Nolan says if there are dots to connect, they will connect them. Both the FAA and NTSB investigating all six of these incidents. But Nolan today said other than the type of these incidents, there's really no common cause that's apparent right now. Never before, though, Jake, have there been so many of these incidents back to back. Pete Montine, thanks so much in our health lead today. Another high profile hearing on Capitol Hill, this one on the origins of the coronavirus pandemic at the first public hearing by the House panel investigating COVID. Witnesses called by Republicans made the case that the virus may have been the result of a lab leak in Wuhan China, we know now that two U.S. intelligence agencies in the Department of Energy and in the FBI have now issued low to moderate confidence level assessments that the virus was most likely the result of a lab leak. That means that they believe the evidence is largely circumstantial. But there is still no consensus among all U.S. intelligence communities. With us now, Republican Congressman Brad Wenstrup of Ohio. He's the chair of the Select Committee on the Coronavirus Pandemic. He's also a physician and an Iraq War veteran. Uh, Mr. Chairman, thanks for joining us. I, I first want to get your overall takeaway uh, on what you and your committee learned in today's hearing. Is the U.S. any closer, do you think, to finding solid, definitive evidence about how and where this virus originated and spread? Yeah, I don't know that we'll ever get exact definitive evidence, uh, though there is no smoking gun at this point. But I think that we did make some progress today because you saw all the witnesses today and really all the members agreeing that it is important that we try to find the origins of COVID. If we are going to move forward, and hopefully this committee can produce a product as we move forward that will help us to try and, and predict if there's going to be another pandemic and prepare for it and maybe prevent it if possible and protect the American people. So we have to have these serious conversations. So I thought that was a good start today uh, as we went forward in that direction. You know, there was uh, interesting moments to it. Uh, when you talk about nature versus the lab, I think it's healthy to have the conversation about both. And, and we had the chance to do that today. But we've seen some curious things that came out in the testimony today. Uh, Dr. Redfield was talking about things that happened in the fall of 2019 in China. 
uh, where they destroyed the sequences. They had a couple of researchers that got sick during that time. They changed over from civilian control to military control at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And so, you know, we see some things that raise some eyebrows. They also changed their ventilation system yeah. within that lab. So, you know, those are things that make you curious. And, you know, look, I would love for this thing to be from nature. I think that'd be the safest thing for mankind, yeah. is that it came from nature. So I do want to look at that, and I hope that that's what we find. But I, I do have grave concerns that if it came from a lab, and it was created in a lab, which we know that capability exists, we were funding this type of research over there, but if it came out of the lab and was man-made, that's a threat to us in so many ways, and I worry about nefarious behavior with anything. So let's listen to a testimony from uh, uh, Robert Redfield, the former CDC director, uh, who has long supported the lab leak hypothesis. Let's roll that tape. This virus was immediately the most infectious virus, not the most, I think probably right behind measles, virus that we've ever seen infect man. So I immediately said, wait a second, this isn't natural. And then you go back and look at the literature and you find in 2014, this lab actually published a paper that they put the H2 receptor into humanized mice so it can infect human tissue. And then you learn that the new COVID, which came from bats, now can hardly replicate in bats. Yeah. So how does that happen? I don't think that answer is gonna come from the scientific community. I think that answer is gonna come from the intelligence community. So Dr. Redfield said he concluded that the virus was a result of an accident. If that's proven to be the case, what do you think accountability will look like for the Chinese government? Well, that might be tough to say, but I would hope that there'd be a worldwide response. We cannot just let this take place. And if there is accountability that needs to be put, placed on China, it needs to happen. The World Health Organization is an organization that is there to serve all of humankind. And if you have members of an organization that aren't there for the same purpose, are not willing to cooperate, then there needs to be some repercussions in some way. But you know, look, this, this virus was novel and no one had seen anything like this before. So as we went along in America, people were making decisions, in some cases flying blindly. I don't fault anyone for that. The question is when we found out, when we got more data, when we understood more about the virus, did we make the correct mm -hmm. decisions too? So, but as far, as far as the lab goes, I think it is extremely important, especially if we were conducting this type of research with them in some way or funding it in some way, even through fungible means. Look, there are scientists, going back to 2012, there was an inter interview with Dr. Fauci where he said, well, I think we can learn a lot by creating these types of viruses. And if we create them, and I'm paraphrasing here, Jake, right. you know, if we can create these types of viruses and cure them, then maybe there, we can take care of any pandemic that ever comes down the road. I can see where that scientific mind would be there, but he was also asked, are you concerned about this potentially coming out of a lab and creating a pandemic? And his thought at that time was, he thought the benefits outweighed the risk and the risk of it leaking from a lab so, is, is very little. Yeah, go ahead. So I just wanna, we're running out of time, but I, I wanna know what you made of the testimony from Jamie Metzl, a senior fellow for The Atlantic and researcher. Uh, who testified that, in his view, the scientific community discouraged investigating the lab leak hypothesis. 
Well, he said that, and so did Dr. Redfield. Uh, they both came out saying that we really should look at this coming from a lab, and we think it may have come from a lab, and they got boxed out. Dr. Redfield certainly got boxed out, and then it became this small group of scientists. They're not virologists like Dr. Redfield. They excluded Dr. Redfield, and within a week of saying this looks engineered, they came out with a paper that said definitively in their mind it came from nature. Big question on that is why? And I think it's only fair that we ask that question. All right. Uh, Chairman and Republican Congressman Brad Wenstrup of Ohio, thanks so much for, for coming here. Appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. Coming up, the Senate's plan to go through with a vote that critics call symbolic and unnecessary. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the U.S. Senate is expected today to block D.C.'s controversial crime bill, even after the D.C. City Council tried to withdraw the legislation after getting a lot of pushback from not only the mayor of Washington, D.C. and more than 30 Democratic members of the House, but from President Biden himself. The council chair called today's Senate action nothing more than a symbolic vote. CNN's Jessica Dean is on Capitol Hill for us. Jessica, we're expecting a number of Democratic senators to join Republicans in overturning the D.C. crime bill. That's exactly right, Jake. We know that Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will be joining Republicans along with a number of Senate Democrats, a lot of whom are, frankly, up for re-election in 2024. And, of course, crime has been a very popular Republican attack against Democrats, and it will likely continue to be into the next election season in 24. Uh, We've spoken to a number of these Senate Senate Democrats that will be voting with Republicans. I talked to Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey a few days ago. He said that it's not that he's supporting Republicans on this, but he told me it's just he's against what D.C. did. Here, He said, if anything, they should be raising penalties, not lowering them in crimes like robberies and carjackings. Now, other Democrats like Elizabeth Warren uh, will be voting against this. She says this is stomping on Washington, D.C. Those were her words. And there are some other Democrats that, of course, will be voting against this. But on the whole, we are going to see pretty bipartisan support uh, in favor of this resolution that will block this D.C. crime bill. And as you mentioned, uh, the president kind of angering some House Democrats on this when it went through the House. He He had not yet uh, said what he would do if this were to get to him, if he would veto it or just let it be. And when he came to speak to Senate Democrats, he said he would be he would just let it be. He would not veto it. And some 173 House Democrats uh, voting against the measure that would rescind this bill. uh, They kind of felt like they were hung out to dry on this issue. Of course, they'll be up in 2024 as well, Jake. And the debate over whether Congress should meddle in the district's affairs, it's contentious among Democrats, especially when it comes to this issue of crime. Absolutely. And of course, there's always this issue of D.C. statehood, which many Democrats do support. But on this specific issue of crime, as you mentioned, this is such a popular attack line from Republicans. It's something that Democrats do have their eye on politically as they head into 2024, the presidential election, of course, all the Senate races, the House races as well. So this is a particular a particular issue uh, where we do see them kind of breaking with, with an issue that they generally support, which is the right for D.C. to govern itself and even to become a state. All right, Jessica Dean on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. I want to bring in Brian Schwab. He's the attorney general for Washington, D.C. General Schwab, thanks for joining us. So the D.C. City Council is now working on a new version of the crime bill. Do you have any influence as to what changes they might make, such as perhaps not lessening penalties for carjackers? Well, Jake, thank you for having me. Now, as the chief law officer of the District of Columbia, uh, I'm not a legislator. I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm, I'm enforcing the laws, and I think important for me to be defending the laws that are passed by the District of Columbia. 
uh, council. It, it's a sad day for the District of Columbia and the 700,000 people who live here. It's a sad day for democracy and core democratic values and really highlights how important statehood is. Until the District of Columbia is recognized as a state, uh, we are going to continue to be used as a political football, as a pawn in a game that's being played in a hyper-partisan, divisive national politics. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's undemocratic, it's unfair, and frankly, it's insulting to the people who live here in the District of Columbia. Uh, nobody cares more about safety in the District of Columbia. Nobody cares more about democracy in the District of Columbia than the people who live here, the nearly 700,000 people who live here and, and who vote and who pay taxes. Well, and the idea that uh, federal officials elected elsewhere think they know better about how to make our city safe and fair is candidly, it's just insulting. So I'm one of those almost 700,000 who pays taxes and and uh, and votes and uh, and doesn't have the enfranchisement that, that uh, others do outside D.C. But don't you think a crime bill like this current one, which was opposed by Biden and the mayor, actually might have hurt the cause of home rule in D.C.? Well, I think, unfortunately, the crime bill um, and the narrative that started around the crime bill were, was not true to what was actually in the bill or the process that went into passing this bill. This was 10 plus years of legislative effort to try to make our criminal code uh, consistent, modern, one that is uh, not full of things that are internally inconsistent and hard to follow, recognizing that a criminal justice system that works efficiently is one that enhances public safety. This crime bill increased sentences on many crimes, including right. attempted murder and robbery. And so the narrative around what this crime bill actually did was divorced from the facts. And that takes me back to what I said at the beginning. This is a political battle, not one that's really aimed at making the District of Columbia safer. Well, All of us who are elected to Austin, D.C. need to keep as our number one priority how do we make sure people in the District of Columbia are safe? And uh, everybody deserves to feel safe in their neighborhoods. That's what we're elected to do. Right, but and I crime's rising in D.C. Around what it's, not an, it's not a narrative. It's not a narrative. Crime is rising in D.C. Carjackings are up for a fifth straight year. Carjackings are an inherently violent crime. Uh, I talked with D.C. DC Councilman Janice Lewis-George on Monday about this. Listen to this. Here, here's some of what she said when it comes to preventing crime. What actually deters crime is the likelihood that someone will be caught and prosecuted, not the lengthy sentence. So what's your reaction to that? Why are carjackings rising in this city? Why is crime rising in this city? Is there not enough catching of criminals and prosecuting of criminals? So we need to remember that under the current law, the current law that as a result of this disapproval vote is going to remain the status quo, we have had an increase in carjacking. So the mere fact that there's a threat of a long sentence is not deterring carjacking in our city. We do have to prosecute cases. We have to hold people accountable. We need to make sure everybody understands that the terrifying crime of carjacking is totally unacceptable. We need our police and our law enforcement to work together so we can effectively prosecute cases. But uh, Councilmember George is exactly right. The deterrent effect for our criminal laws is when people know with certainty and swiftness that there are going to be consequences. 
long, long prison sentences have not proven to be a deterrent. And that's something that we would get to in terms of having a safer system if we could have a sane conversation about how we really reduce crime and address the root causes of crime. Right. But well, when it gets politicized. I mean, go ahead. We have to go, but I just uh, long prison sentences not serving as a deterrent doesn't mean that, that lesser prison sentences will better serve as a deterrent. Um, but let's have you back and talk more about this. Washington, D.C. Attorney General uh, 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 Brian Schwab, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Next, the new questions about features in Tesla cars after a deadly crash, plus reports that steering wheels in one Tesla model can actually fall off while in use. International lead uh, renewed scrutiny on Tesla today as the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA, is now investigating a deadly crash involving a Tesla and a fire truck. NHTSA is also looking into reports that steering wheels on one Tesla model became detached while the vehicle was being driven. CNN's Gabe Cohen joins me now. Gabe, let's start with that crash last month involving a Tesla Model S and and a fire truck in Northern California. It's once again putting Tesla's self-driving system in the spotlight. Yeah, Jake, it is. And this is part of a broader NHTSA investigation into Tesla's controversial self-driving technology, which now includes more than 40 Tesla crashes and 20 fatalities. And you can add that tragic crash in California to the list because NHTSA says they're now investigating whether Tesla's automated features may have played a role in that violent crash. That Tesla plowing into a fire truck that was parked on a freeway, blocking lanes after another collision. It killed the Tesla driver and it critically injured a passenger inside the vehicle. Four firefighters were also in the truck, but fortunately only had minor injuries. And Jake, what we don't know right now is if that self-driving feature was actually turned on at the time. But if it was, uh, NHTSA documents show it would be at least the 17th time that a Tesla with that autopilot feature engaged has hit an emergency vehicle while it's parked in the road. And just last month, a Tesla was required to issue a recall of 363,000 vehicles because of that software, because of the full self-driving software that investigators felt was not sufficiently obeying traffic safety laws, like, uh, for example, running stop signs. Uh, and as you said, Jake, uh, this technology has really been under the microscope for a while, but it does seem to be intensifying so far this year. Gabe, what do we know about this instance of a steering wheel possibly coming off while that Tesla was being driven? Yes, yeah, so Jake, we've heard about the software concerns. This was a hardware concern with regulators now investigating Tesla's Model Y SUV after at least two incidents where drivers said the steering wheel detached. It came off while the car was being driven. Now, in those cases, the cars were actually delivered to the owners without that bolt that attaches the wheel to the steering column. Uh, at this point, we don't know, Jake, how that happened. And to be clear, so far, this is not a recall. It's an investigation, but it could impact uh, up to 120,000 of this year's Model Y, the 2023, if this does eventually become a recall. All right, Gabe Cohen, thanks so much. Coming up next, the results of a federal investigation launched after the death of Breonna Taylor. The damning report today finding a pattern of racist and abusive conduct by Louisville, Kentucky police. Stay with us. (laughs) 
Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. In this hour, it's only the second week in March, but you may already be suffering from a runny nose, sneezing, and irritated eyes. Why pollen allergies are already worse than ever. Plus, tears on the hill as one Marine recounts the chaos of the Afghanistan withdrawal. I'm thrown 12 feet onto the ground, but instantly knew what had happened. I opened my eyes to Marines dead or unconscious lying around me. Veterans and service members describing what went wrong and warning about the disaster still building. And leading this hour, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland issuing a scathing critique of the Louisville Metro Police Department after the Justice Department's nearly two-year review of that botched raid where police killed Breonna Taylor in March 2020. The report found Louisville police officers use excessive force and, quote, unlawfully discriminate against black people. We're going to talk to Breonna Taylor's mother in a minute, but first, CNN's Evan Perez joins us. Evan, what kind of evidence did the Justice Department gather? Well, Jake, this was a scathing report, and it really uh, goes to show uh, that the that the, the the Louisville Police Department has been uh, practicing and abusing uh, the black community in that city for many, many years. According to the Justice Department, uh, they've known for years that the police department was targeting uh, African Americans uh, for for uh, pretextual police stops, for instance, uh, trying to figure out ways to get them to pull pull over, and then finding additional things, uh, additional crimes that they could look into. Uh, they renamed uh, a crime unit called the Viper Unit, uh, but continued doing the same things. The city itself looked into some of the practices of the police department targeting African Americans, and nothing changed after doing that. Here's uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland describing some of the findings. Some officers have demonstrated disrespect for the people they are sworn to protect. Some have videotaped themselves throwing drinks at pedestrians from their cars, insulted people with disabilities, and called black people monkeys, animal, and boy. This conduct is unacceptable. It is heartbreaking. Jake, uh, th- Jake, the the number of things that the the, the department lists in this investigation, including uh, un- unlawful neck restraints, using dogs uh, to against uh, suspects even after they had surrendered, it just goes on and on. And now this is going to be part of a court-ordered settlement that the Justice Department will enter into the city. That's going to be overseen by a judge. Evan, how are officials in Louisville reacting? Well, they say that they're now going to cooperate fully to try to fix this police department. Again, they've known for years that these were problems. And they they also say that they're trying to keep this away from politics. Obviously, you know, Jake, that the the issue of police reform invariably gets tied up in partisan politics here in Washington and around the country. Yeah. Evan Perez, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Breonna Taylor's family attorney, uh, Lenita Baker, and Breonna Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer, uh, Mrs. Palmer, let me start with you. Um, You said earlier you feel like this report indicates your daughter's death was, quote, not in vain. Uh, I I, I know that closure doesn't really exist uh, in in this world uh, of losing a child. But but tell us how you're feeling today. Um, Just a lot of mixed emotions. Um, I don't want to say use the word grateful, but in a sense you are to know that 
all the work that we've done, we're able to see the outcome of it. Yeah. Lanita, do you think if this report had come out five years ago that Breonna Taylor might still be alive? Oh, Breonna Taylor absolutely would have been alive if this report had come out five years ago. Um, the report today is is not surprising to me uh, as, you know, we represented Breonna Taylor in 2020. We represent the young man that is cited within the report that was detained for over 40 minutes um, with an illegal traffic stop. Uh, we've, I've represented a number of people who have been the victims of this egregious and racist behavior of local Metro Police Department. So um, this Department of Justice investigation was necessary. It was long overdue. Had um, Global Metro governed itself accordingly, um, Breonna Taylor would absolutely be alive. And it's why uh, we uh, welcome the Department of Justice. We welcome the consent decree. We look forward to real change in the city of Louisville, but not just in the city of Louisville. Um, you mentioned about the politics and the political, uh, when we talk about police reform, this is why police reform is necessary. This is a culture that's invaded police departments across the country, and it has to stop black and brown lives matter. And Mrs. Palmer, do you agree uh, that if this report had come out five years ago, your daughter would still be alive? And does that suggest perhaps that future lives will be saved because of the horrible tragedy that happened? I absolutely agree that she would still be alive had this already been done. Um, I've said even from the beginning that whatever the outcome is won't change what happened to Brianna, but it will definitely help the Briannas to come. And Lanita, the, the report clearly states that the Louisville Police Department, quote, unlawfully uses race in its enforcement activities. In the Justice Department's 36 recommendations for the city's police, Racial bias training or anti-discrimination training, however, is not mentioned. Do you think it should be included? I think it definitely should be included. Uh, I think it's going to be necessary. And I don't think, it, even though it may not be specifically referenced, I think it's going to happen. Uh, you can't have a policy called people places, narco- uh, people places narcotics and target black males driving nice cars in, in the West End of Louisville and not deal with um, race and, and racial bias um, within the department. So um, it, I definitely think it should have been uh, listed, and I'm hopeful uh, that it will be included as we move forward. Mrs. Palmer, was there anything in the report that surprised you? No. Um, just the amount of time that it took to get here. That yeah. would be it. Yeah, it did take a long time. Uh, Lanita, the the city and the police department have agreed to a consent degree with the U.S. Department of Justice, which means that a judge will keep tab, keep tabs on the Justice Department's recommendations to make sure they're they're implemented. A retired NYPD lieutenant tells CNN, however, that the city of Louisville will really have to shoulder the cost of these recommendations. And in many cases, cities like Louisville don't have the money uh, to make all these changes. Uh, This NYPD detective told us, quote, these consent decrees don't accomplish anything are you worried about implementation? Um, I'm not worried about implementation. We, uh, the Louisville Metro Police Department has spent 30 million over, as was cited in the report, over 30 million to to settle uh, claims of police misconduct. Yeah. If we fix the department, 
we don't have to continue to pay out those settlements. So so we definitely can find the money uh, and um, we definitely have to change. We cannot continue uh, going the way that we are. And uh, again, that's not just local, but that's that's nationally. We cannot continue to police the way that we police in our Fourth Amendment right. Legal search and seizure is just as important as our Second Amendment right. That we, it's just as dear. It's just as support of the Constitution. Uh, and just because people look a different way does not mean that the, the Constitution does not apply to them as well. Mrs. P- Palmer, uh, everybody watching has heard of your daughter, Breonna Taylor. Uh, she is a symbol of, of uh, the need for policing reform to a lot of people. She is a change agent. Uh, we see today because of what the Justice Department is recommending. But to you, she was your daughter. Tell us about her. What do you want us to remember about her beyond being a symbol and a change agent? Um, just that she was, she was the best part of me in every way possible. Um, she loved life. She loved family. She loved, she was content on just living and being great. And she had this spirit out of this world, a smile that could light up a room. And to 26 years was just not enough. Nope, it was not. Our deepest condolences uh, to you, uh, Mrs. Palmer. Lenita Baker, Mrs. Palmer, thank you so much for talking to us today. We were honored by your presence. Thank, thank you. you. Shortly before the Louisville review, the Justice Department announced it will also review the Memphis Police Department after the brutal police beating of Tyree Nichols in January of this year. CNN's Shimon Prokopes joins us now. And Shimon, in addition, the Memphis City Council has launched a separate independent review. What's the scope of these reviews? How long could they take? So the practices, you know, it's really what the use of force practices, the uh, de-escalation practices. This is something that the Department of Justice is really interested in, because when you look at the video from when Tyree Nichols was stopped, that aggressive action by officers in those first few moments when they uh, intercepted, when they interacted with Tyree Nichols. So that is what they're going to be reviewing those two key things because community members have been complaining about the Memphis Police Department and as well as Tyree Nichols' family. They asked for this. So now the Department of Justice is launching this review. And also, Jake, important is that they're now launching a review of specialized units all across the country, these police units that, you know, have these aggressive police tactics to try and fight crime. So now those teams all across the country are now under review by the Department of Justice. And Shimon, um, Memphis was bracing for 20 hours of new video to be released today, video of the events surrounding Tyree Nichols' brutal death. But an attorney for one of the officers involved in the beating uh, blocked the release of the video. You just got a statement from that attorney. What's his reasoning? Yeah, we were supposed to get some 20 hours of video, and he's arguing that... In order for his client to receive a fair trial, he needs to review this video to see what's being released because sometimes evidence is released that could perhaps uh, not be admissible in court and they don't want to taint the jury. So he's asking the judge to give him some time and to work with prosecutors to review some of this information that was set to be released at this hour. Uh, We're now waiting for it. Uh, The judge said, "Okay, well, we're going to delay it uh, until the two sides can come to some kind of an agreement. So we'll see when that'll happen. But we are expecting to see this video at some point. All right, Shimon Prokopes, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The stark warning 
about the fallout of the Afghanistan withdrawal from a former Green Beret who did three tours in Afghanistan. I think we're on the front end of a mental health tsunami. As 73% of our Afghan war veterans say they feel betrayed by how this war ended. More of the emotional testimony on the Hill today that brought some service members to tears. Then, more details emerging about the last movements of those Americans kidnapped and killed in Mexico. In our world lead, an emotional, illuminating, and at times, frankly, infuriating hearing on Capitol Hill today, focusing on the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021. As CNN's Kylie Atwood reports for us now, a U.S. Marine who was wounded in that horrific suicide bomb attack outside the Kabul airport testified that his unit spotted an Afghan man that they believe was the suicide bomber, spotted him ahead of time, but they could not get the authority to engage. My body was overwhelmed from the trauma of the blast. My abdomen had been ripped open. Every inch of my exposed body, except for my face, took ball bearings and shrapnel. U.S. Marine Corps Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews is now a double amputee. He was one of the 35 service members injured when a suicide bomber attacked Kabul as the United States was withdrawing from the country. 13 service members died that day. There was an inexcusable lack of accountability and negligence. The 11 Marines, one sailor, and one soldier that were murdered that day have not been answered for. The 25-year-old shared his story with the House Foreign Affairs Committee as they investigate the chaotic and bloody U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Hours before the attack, Vargas Andrews used his sniper gun to spot a man in the crowd of thousands who looked like the suicide bomber that intelligence officials had warned was in the vicinity. He showed the man to his team leader. We asked him if we could shoot. Our battalion commander said, and I quote, I don't know, end quote. Myself and my team leader asked very harshly, well, who does? because this is your responsibility, sir. He again replied he did not know, but would find out. Vargas Andrews never got an answer. He told lawmakers that the Navy and the FBI failed to interview him about his experience. Plain and simple, we were ignored. Our expertise was disregarded. No one was held accountable for our safety. He's not the only U.S. service member who is haunted by the memories of that day. Here is former combat medic Aiden Gunnarsson. Screams from little children. Women and grown men echoed in the tight corridor. Marines and corpsmen around me fought through tears to provide life-saving aid to our emotionless and severely injured American brothers and sisters. Over the next hour, I tried to save the lives of countless Marines. We all tried our best. It was a nightmare. Some witnesses blamed the Biden administration for the evacuation's failures. Good afternoon. Others widened the aperture. This is not the story of a Biden failure or a Trump failure. This is a story of an American failure and the effect it has had and continues to have on Afghans who served alongside myself and so many others. Multiple witnesses were U.S. veterans who stood up unofficial networks to help Afghans escape the country. They said they got requests from high-ranking U.S. government officials to help them get people out. Me, us, private citizens, receiving requests from our own government to assist what is essentially a governmental function. It was humbling. It was terrifying. It was at times stupefying. Now, one of those who provided testimony today, Jake, warned of a mental health tsunami for the veterans who were involved in trying to get out Afghans
who they had actually worked with in Afghanistan just talked about how challenging that was and how hard it was on them when they weren't able to get out some of the folks that they worked with in the country. Of course, today we didn't see any Biden administration officials uh, providing testimony, but we do expect that this committee is going to seeking be seeking out that testimony from administration officials down the road. This is just an investigation that is only beginning, and presumably this testimony that was provided today, in in addition to documents that the they are trying to get from the administration, are going to be what will drive the questions for Biden administration officials when they do provide testimony. Jake. All right, Kylie Atwood, thanks so much. Also in our world lead, the remains of Shaheed Woodard and Zindel Brown should arrive in the United States today while the two survivors of the attack in Mexico are being treated at an American hospital. CNN's Rosa Flores reports on new details now that are emerging about how this kidnapping unfolded. Two of four Americans kidnapped in Mexico are now in the U.S. and preparing to return home. Latavia Washington McGee, a mother of six, heading to South Carolina today, according to her family, who spoke to her by phone. All I did was say hey and tell her that I missed her. The other survivor, Eric Williams, remains in Brownsville, Texas, undergoing treatment for three gunshot wounds to his legs. For now, one person has been detained linked to the kidnappings, a 24-year-old male who Mexican authorities said was watching the victims. Mexican officials would not confirm whether he is linked to a criminal organization. The U.S. is now working to bring home the remains of Zindel Brown and Shaid Woodard, the two people found dead after the kidnapping in the Mexico border city of Matamoros. Their autopsies were completed today. Ya se está haciendo la investigación. Mexican authorities say they are still investigating what happened after the four Americans crossed the border. We do know the group was driving a rented minivan and got lost en route to a clinic where McGee had a medical appointment, according to a close friend. We just left the hotel where the Americans stayed, and it's about an 11-minute drive to the International Bridge where Mexican authorities say that the Americans crossed into Matamoros at about 9.18 a.m. on Friday. McGee's mother says she spoke to her daughter about the kidnapping. A van came up and hit him, and that's when they started shooting at the car. The other rest tried to run, and they got shot at the same time. She watched them die. The four Americans were ultimately found by Mexican authorities here on Tuesday. The two survivors were hospitalized, and the bodies of the two killed were recovered in and around this wooden structure. But questions remain about where the group went during the four days before they were found by Mexican authorities. There's the International Bridge. There's a gas station. And I talked to the attendant who was here on Friday. He says he doesn't remember the Americans, but there's a store next door and they're checking their surveillance video. Brownsville officials say Americans routinely cross into Mexico for medical care at this border crossing. According to Patients Beyond Borders, millions of people travel to Mexico each year expecting to save anywhere from 40 to 60 percent on major medical procedures. But there are risks beyond the medical ones, and officials urge caution. It's very easy to get lost in, in Mexico. Now, Mexico's AG's office telling our colleagues at CNNE that the repatriation of the two Americans is expected very soon. A timeline was not provided. Now, Mexican officials say that the autopsies of the Americans have been completed. But, Jake, they are not releasing at this time cause and manner of death. Jake. 
And Rosa, uh, you have seen migrants treated completely differently uh, at the border. Um, Tell us about that. Yeah, this particular case really shines light on a double standard, Jake, that we see on the border. And if you just think about it like this, uh, we have the U.S. State Department telling Americans and warning Americans not to travel to places like Matamoros because they are too dangerous for Americans to visit. And yet DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, based on its uh, based on, on its policies, is practically forcing migrants to wait in Mexico to seek asylum. I've, I've been in multiple parts of uh, northern Mexico, and I can tell you a lot of those migrants are trying to use that app that was released by Customs and Border Protection, and they're having a lot of trouble. They have to use that app to set up an appointment to seek asylum at a port of entry. And what is the net effect? They're having to wait in very dangerous conditions. There are thousands of migrants, Jake, waiting in Matamoros. And unfortunately, some of them have been killed. They're extorted, but nobody is investigating. That's what advocates in Matamoros are telling me, Jake. All right, Rosa Flores, thank you so much. Coming up, new filings in the Dominion lawsuit against Fox reveal what several network hosts really thought about former President Trump. Stay with us. In our politics lead, a trove of new text messages and emails revealing how Fox executives, hosts, and staff really felt about former President Donald Trump and the 2020 election lies he and his associates were pushing. One host writing that he hates Trump, quote, passionately, adding there isn't really an upside to Trump. This all comes as part of Dominion Voting System's $1.6 billion lawsuit against Fox. CNN's Paula Reid poured through the wave of new court filings and the new insight they give us into what individuals who work at Fox were truly thinking. New documents reveal more evidence that Fox News stars and top executives believed Trump and his allies were lying about the 2020 election. Voter fraud is something that is real, that just took place two weeks ago. But amid falling ratings, the network continued to promote Trump and his lies. The outcome of our presidential election was seized from the hands of voters. According to court documents, host Tucker Carlson texted a producer on January 4th, 2021, just two days before the Capitol attack. We're very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I hate him passionately. I can't handle much more of this. Admitting what a disaster it's been is too tough to digest. But come on, there isn't really an upside to Trump. Those private remarks, a total contrast to Carlson's public support of Trump that same night. What happened was, The people in charge rigged the game. Carlson's private messages were released as part of Dominion Voting System's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against the right-wing network. The trove of documents turned over in discovery revealed that doubts extended all the way to the top. On January 21, 2021, the first full day of President Joe Biden's administration, Fox chairman Rupert Murdoch conceded in an email to Fox News' CEO Suzanne Scott that some of Fox's top talent went too far. Disturbing irregularities have been found and must be investigated to the fullest. Then, during his deposition, Murdoch was asked, do you believe that Dominion was engaged in a massive and coordinated effort to steal the 2020 presidential election? Murdoch replied, 
No. Fox now saying Dominion is cherry-picking emails and documents to release. Dominion has been caught red-handed using more distortions and misinformation in their PR campaign to smear Fox News and trample on free speech and freedom of the press. But Dominion says the emails, text, and deposition testimony speak for themselves. The revelations, though, didn't come as a surprise to at least one Republican. I'm not surprised that intelligent people realize that what they were saying on the air was uh, untruthful, was lies. uh, And uh, I'm just uh, disappointed that they would uh, sell their, their personal integrity so cheaply. We're expecting new evidence to be released tonight. Some of the documents already coming in. We've begun to review those. Jake, as you know, both sides of this case have already asked a judge to resolve this in their favor without going to trial. There is, of course, also a small chance that they could settle. But right now, this case is scheduled to go to trial next month in Delaware. It's expected to last around five weeks. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. With me to discuss CNN political commentator Bakari Sellers, uh, a former Democratic uh, elected official and former Trump White House communications director Alyssa Farrah Griffin. Bakari, here are some of the quotes from Tucker Carlson revealed in the filings. Tucker said, quote, we're very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I truly can't wait. I hate him passionately. I blew it up, blew up at former White House official Peter Navarro today in frustration. I actually like Peter, but I can't handle much more of this. That's the last four years. We're all pretending we've got a lot to show for it because admitting What a disaster it's been is too tough to digest, but come on, there isn't really an upside to Trump. Now, hold on one second, Bakari, because I'm going to say something that you might be surprised. This really isn't relevant to whether or not Fox lied about the elections. Dominion is not suing Fox for lying about Trump uh, and pretending they like Donald Trump. Uh, Dominion is suing Fox for lying about the elections and, and platforming liars about the elections. You're a lawyer. Does this not boost the Fox argument that Dominion is in many of these filings just trying to embarrass them? Well, they are trying to embarrass them. And I think that it is, uh, you know, Dominion trying to win, um, not just in the court of law, but in the court of public opinion. And let me just kind of reframe your statement just a little bit, because it's not just proving that Fox News lied about um, the 2020 elections but they willfully lied about those 2020 elections. And I think that some of these comments, some of these text messages, some of the things that are coming out show that not only did they know it was false, not only did they despise this man, but they did it anyway. And when you look, when you combine these things with some context in Rupert Murdoch's context, this was all about green. This was all about money. When you look at this just from a viewer's perspective, though, it shows you that there's no difference really than between, you know, Tucker Carlson and say Hulk Hogan or a professional wrestler. It looks like it's all entertainment. It looks like it's all done for show. And regardless of those journalistic ethics or truth, it does not matter to certain hosts at Fox News. And the problem is that they're good people at Fox News and good journalists at Fox News. But Tucker just doesn't want to be considered one of those. So, Alyssa, uh he again, Tucker's not being sued for pretending that he likes Donald Trump. Uh, and and uh, you and I are not attorneys. Um, but I'm wondering, as somebody who worked in the Trump administration uh, and the Trump administration obviously worked hand in glove with Fox, um, what's your reaction to what I'm saying right now? Like, does this not look? I mean, I, I hate those election lies wherever they come from. And certainly Fox pushed them all and apparently uh, willingly. Um, but this isn't really part of the case here. 
It's not, but I do think it matters. It just shows how craven the lying was, frankly, um, and the motivations behind it. I mean, Bakari mentioned, I think that the most damning thing that's come out is this Rupert Murdoch quote where he says, it's not red or blue, it's green. I'm not even sure that they necessarily care about which party they're boosting or who they're boosting so long as the ratings are there. And here's the danger. Um, I talk about how we live in split screen America. Half the country is going to keep watching Fox, and they're not really going to know that this lawsuit takes place. They're not really going to know that they've been actively lied to by one of the most watched man in cable news about the election and any number of other things. I do give credit to people like Brett Baer and some reporters who have at least covered the story on the airwaves. But it is, I mean, it is such, it's so indicative of just this this climate that we're in politically where you can kind of choose your own news, you can choose your own facts, and Fox has been boosting some of the biggest liars in their prime time. I I don't think Brett Baer has covered the Dominion lawsuit. I think he covered the fact January that, 6th, that yeah. McConnell was pushing back on on the January 6th coverage. But I don't think it's any, basic journalism. And yeah, there's there much I don't more think anybody at, at Fox or the New York Post or any number of conservative outlets have even covered the Dominion uh, lawsuit, which is just a just a basic journalism story. Uh, Bakari, we're also seeing, let's talk about Rupert Murdoch, his deposition. We're seeing more from that. Murdoch was asked by Dominion lawyers, do you believe that Dominion was engaged in a massive and coordinated effort to steal the 2020 presidential election? Murdoch replied, no. Have you ever seen any credible evidence to suggest that Dominion was engaged in a massive and coordinated effort to steal the 2020 election? No, Murdoch replied. And this is more of the chairman of Fox saying that he knew stories and guests on Fox about Dominion allegedly engaging in voter fraud were not true. Um, You're an attorney. Is this case going to be a slam dunk for Dominion? It's a very, it's not a slam dunk, but it it is going to be something as more and more of these depositions come out where you're going to see Fox. And I would not be surprised if this actually did not make it to a jury verdict. Now the, the, the trial may start, but I can only see this particular case with all of this uh, somewhat what, what appears to be damning evidence. We haven't seen all of it, but I can't imagine this actually going to a jury verdict. But you look at this evidence as it comes out, you look at reaching that high bar. It's still a very high bar to reach, but these comments by Rupert Murdoch, and, and I agree with Alyssa, this is the most damning piece of evidence that, that comes out. This is the CEO of this Fox News conglomerate, knowing that the information that they are putting out is false and willingly just or acquiescing to it being disseminated. That is a huge problem for their lawyers to overcome. I can only see their lawyers saying, look, we need to get out of this some way. We need to find an off ramp. What is that number? What does that settlement look like? Let's have that conversation and let's see if it can be done. Yeah. And Alyssa, I want to get your reaction to the fact that while this story is breaking at the same time, the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, gave Fox exclusive access to more than 40,000 hours of capital security footage of the January 6th attack. Uh, and obviously that has been used on Fox to try to paint the uh, insurrection uh, as largely peaceful, largely unviolent with a bunch of uh, sightseers. Take a listen to how Republicans are responding on the Hill to how Fox portrayed this. It's a revisionist thing that I think is uh, unfair to the American people. It wasn't a stroll through the Capitol. Uh, it was an attack on our capital. Uh, it was an outrageous act. Uh, a lot of people were injured. Our building was uh, was severely damaged. And um, efforts to try and pretend that it was something other than that are despicable and, and frankly, dangerous. McCarthy had a huge hand in this. Why would he do that? 
oh, it's just so irresponsible and reckless, but it's also the most predictable outcome. So Tucker Carlson got something like 40,000 hours of footage, and he decided to air just random bits to suggest, of course, that it was peaceful, not going, you know, not airing the footage that shows people like my friend Officer Fanon being beaten and people saying use his weapon to kill him. But this, this again, this was a deal that Kevin McCarthy had made when he was trying to get the speakership. And what what I think it does is it just it undermines everything in, in the moment that this huge lawsuit is looming, Tucker Carlson's actually leaning into conspiracy. He's not, she's not shying away from it. And I think it shows how untouchable he feels at a network that has just boosted conspiracies left and right. Yeah. By the way, we're on day two of Speaker McCarthy not getting back to me on my four questions about whether he agrees with the conclusions on that Fox program. Alyssa Farrah Griffin, Bakari Sellers, thanks so much. Coming up, a look at the Republican proposal that would use Title IX to sideline some athletes and impact all women's and girls sports teams. Stay with us. Our sports lead now, House Republicans are looking to place transgender girls and transgender women athletes on the sidelines. A new bill would make it a violation of Title IX to allow transgender females to participate in girls' and women's athletic programs. Title IX is a 1972 law that protects people from discrimination based on gender in education programs or activities that get federal funding. With me now to discuss, Democratic Congressman Mark Pocan of Wisconsin. He's the chair of the Equality Caucus, which is made up entirely of Democrats. Uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us. So Republican Congressman Greg Stubbe of Florida who introduced this bill, said in a press release, quote, it's simple, biological males have no place in women's sports. Last spring, Sarasota's own Emma Wyant was robbed of her NCAA championship in the 500 freestyle by a biological male, Leah Thomas. Floridians and Americans across the country are rightly outraged at what has become of women's sports, unquote. He represents the Sarasota area, we we should note. What's your response? My response is Republicans uh, said that they were going to come to Washington and take the majority to lower costs for American people, to have a smaller, less intrusive government. And instead, this is the biggest big brother grab I've ever seen, trying to stop literally handfuls of trans uh, kids, specifically trans girls, to participate in sports. Uh, You know, this is really nothing but a bunch of politicians who've made their brand going after uh, some of the weakest Uh, by numbers in our society. It's bullying trans kids, uh, and yet this is all the Republican majority can do. They can't actually get anything uh, big done, so they're going to go and and appeal to certain elements of their base, and that's all this bill is about. There's no problem that exists in this country on uh, kids who want to play in sports, and uh, honestly, uh, I think a bunch of people in Washington bullying trans kids is pathetic at best, and I have other words I'm not allowed to say on your program. Actually, you're allowed to say anything you want. It's cable. We're not, we're not governed by the FCC, <laughs> but, but, you know, you have voters to respond to. Um, what do you say to Americans who consider themselves progressive, who think that transgender individuals deserve equal rights, deserve protections in law, but do worry that trans girls and women could have an unfair competitive advantage in women's sports? And I've seen... Uh, women athletes, uh, I believe, like Martina Navratilova and others, voicing concerns about these issues. These are not bigots. What do you say to them? Sure. Well, first of all, there's professional organizations for sports and for women in sports uh, that don't agree with this bill or at any positions that there's an unfair advantage. In fact, uh, it's such a small issue as far as the number of people involved 
that you're really using it just to kind of build the culture war more than anything else. Uh, so the professional organizations that work with women in sports have said, whether it's the NCAA, NCAA or the Olympic Committee, uh, they have rules already that govern in this area. We don't need government to come in and be the ultimate big brother to make these decisions when we have groups that quite honestly are doing this uh, quite well on their own. So there's not a problem out there that exists. It really is a problem that we're creating and, and really you're putting kids at risk, kids who already have higher numbers of uh, suicide attempts and mental health issues because of the bullying they get in schools. And now you've got a bunch of people in Washington doing it as well. That's the real problem. There's not a problem about kids participating in sports, but there's a problem with people in Washington deciding that they're going to dictate what the rules are. I don't have to tell you Republicans control the House of Representatives. They can pass this bill without any Democratic support. Um, if that happens, what's your plan? Uh, well, we still have the Senate, the White House, so I think we've got a couple things to do. What I'm more worried about is just by raising an issue that's really nothing more about cultural wars. Again, certain people have built a brand on issues like this, and they fundraise off of it, and they build support off of it. That's what this is really about. But they're bullying kids who just want to be with their friends and participate in sports. We had uh, someone this morning, Rebecca, a 16-year-old who plays field hockey from New Jersey, to give a really a very strong uh, argument about why this makes no sense. And her mother as well came up and talked about it. We're affecting real people, kids who just want to be involved with the positive aspects of sports, being part of a team, having fun. And here you've got Washington coming in saying there's a problem that does not exist. And that's the problem. We, you know, we should be addressing uh, costs for the American people. We should be addressing things like health care and other issues that are really important. And here instead in Congress, we're busy deciding what kids can play what sports at what time. We should note that according to the ACLU, there are more than 80 bills seeking to restrict not just access of transgender girls and women to athletic competitions for women and girls, but uh, restrict access to transgender uh, health care. Congressman Mark Pocan, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Sure, pollen, pollen everywhere. One of the reasons allergy season is starting earlier and getting worse. Stay with us. In our health lead, time to stock up on allergy medication. The allergy season is starting earlier and lasting longer. It's a problem that researchers say is a result of climate change. That's according to Climate Central, a nonprofit focused on climate news and research. Meteorologist Jennifer Gray is here to explain why. Jennifer, researchers also say these are not isolated trends? It's not. These are trends that we've been seeing going on for the last couple of decades. And Jake, this is a huge talker this year. Here in Atlanta, there is a yellow haze across the sky. Everyone is suffering from allergies and it's hitting earlier than ever. This is one of the earliest allergy seasons we've seen in about 30 years. Look at this graphic. This is January and February temperature numbers. You can see all of these states shaded in red. This is the warmest January and February we have seen ever. That's for 12 states. Top 10 warmest January, February for 30 states. So this is hitting hard, especially in the east. The east is warming rapidly. You can see warmest February on record. All of these red dots, uh, top five, the lighter shades. And this is the warming since 1970. And you can see across the southwest and all across the east, we have just been gradually warming. So what happens in a warmer world? You have a longer growing season. And so these areas with the green dots, this shows 60 or more days uh, change with the longer growing season. We've had longer growing seasons, which equals a 
longer allergy season for Atlanta at 34 days. Minneapolis, St. Paul, you've also had a longer growing season of 34 days. So, Jake, this just means the pollen is going to be in the air even longer, and it's happening earlier as well. Jennifer, what can people do to manage their allergies? Well, experts say to try to stay indoors, especially during the early morning and late afternoon. Also keeping the windows closed at home and in the car to stop that pollen from getting inside your home. Make sure you change your air filters more frequently and start the medications one to two weeks before allergy season begins. And I think that was the problem this year because people weren't expecting it to start so soon. But but because we had that super warm February, uh, things just started blooming out of control earlier than expected. All right, Jennifer Gray, thanks so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you know, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts all two hours, sitting there like a giant cantaloupe. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer. He's in a place I like to call the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 